You're listening to the HSDNA Podcast from the Garden State. Your host, Justin Starbird, and guests from HS Design walk you through each step of the medical product development process. Listen in as they discuss topics like contextual research, human factor testing, and conceptualization, giving you the best practices and real examples of success in the field. And now, here's your host, Justin Starbird. Welcome back to this episode of HS DNA. My name is Justin Starbird, and I am joined again today by author, uh, Dr. Mary Beth Privatera. Mary Beth, thanks for joining me again today. Thanks, Justin. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm super excited to go through this section of the book and, and happy to share all that I know about safety-related risk. Yeah, we're on um, our sixth part of your book, covering your book um, that you put out uh, late last year, Applied Human Factors in Medical Device Design, the preemptive uh, textbook on human factors. Um, In this section, you kind of outlined, as you mentioned, safety-related risks. Um, I know that, that, you know, it's not one of the most exciting, uh, you know, topics, but it's it's certainly one of the most important topics um, that we've talked about as we go through this. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about you know some of the challenges that and questions that you answered for you know for this part of the of the book. Yeah. So you know, you mentioned that it's it's not very exciting, and I know that there are those that love that love risk. Um, you know, it's one of those approaches that's just inherent regardless of the medical device so you know there's always some level of risk and risk that has to be managed and you know there's there's quite a number of international standards on risk identification and and what that process is to mitigate the risk apologies for the dog that's chewing the toy in the background but needs must at this time um but the uh, you know the, the medical device industry has to address the you know the risk um, and that includes human factors. So um, and specifically just in what is the use related risk analysis? You know what's the root cause of those problems? And then you know once a product's released, how am I going to survey the the you know the 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 product as it's being used? And what am I going to do about it? And how am I going to get that customer input back into the design process? So you make a good point, you know, that um, there are some that, you know, dive right into this topic and, and you actually had a couple of folks um, that do that on a daily basis that helped in this section. Tell us a little bit about um, who you partnered with to, you know, get the best information available uh, in this space. Yeah. So, you know, this is, uh, I think every human factors design firm, you know, they, they're going to have some area um, that's uh, some dedicated personnel for risk analysis and 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 really the, the the authors that contributed to this section were just phenomenal so there's a, a chapter that's on use focused risk analysis that's by Sophia Kalita and Melissa Lemke you know Melissa's been an author in several sections I've known her for years super solid they come from Agilis um, really and, and that's the that's one of that chapter in particular is one of the major backbones for all of our human factors validation testing, which we'll we'll get to. And then there's another chapter on root cause analysis by Tim Reeves, Christina Mendoa, and Eric Shaver. And again, another solid group. Um, Tim is faculty with the the Amy, um, longstanding contributor to HE75. And without going through and doing that risk analysis, you know, 
you're, you're going to have to understand that root cause, right? So first is identifying it and then looking for that root cause of what's going to go on. And, and they did a phenomenal job. And then lastly, it's a chapter that I authored in regards to known use error and post-market surveillance. And that just points down to all of the databases and the research that's available for us to look at legacy devices and devices that have been out on the market or devices that are headed out on the market, how do we actually capture that information once it's out in the field? And how, how do you go about capturing that information once it's out in the field? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it gets down to, you know, it's, a, it's voluntary on the, on the physician and the clinician side, but it's mandatory that a manu manufacturer would respond. But when I say voluntary, it's for them to report it meaning they could have um, you know, a problem in the field and they could just ignore it or they could be bothered by it that they could report it to the FDA. So there's databases that are out there that capture that information that we can use in product development. Um, but you know, it's something that, that often um, we, 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 may, we always wanna have good customer service, but you know, how does that go back into your design process and what does that say about the overall usability of your product. So that's really what we're talking about in, in regards to that known use error and what they're already doing. Sure. So you, you outlined um, the process for use related risk analysis um, yeah. in, in one of the sections of the book. You want to walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, so this one is, is brought to, in, it's presented in the book by, um, like I mentioned, Sophia Kalita and Melissa Lemke. And it goes over that whole risk management process of, of what does it, what is it, what do you have to do? And this covers both the risk management in regards to um, the overall risk management of the device itself, but then also focused on the use related risk management. And it starts off with just identifying the intended use, what are the characteristics, the hazards, and estimating those hazardous situations. Um, and then determine whether or not that risk is acceptable. So do I need to reduce that risk? And then putting in risk control measures. So what will those measurements, putting that in there and, and evaluating the, the residual risk, what's the risk benefit analysis? Um, and then going through and testing whether or not your um, risk control measures are actually going to be working for you. Um, it gets down to the overall residual risk evaluation reporting and, um, and just getting into the, you know, all of the information that you're going to put into your file. Mm -hmm. You, you kind of outlined, um, you know, speaking of that file, you kind of outlined the different types of, of um, human factors, you know, processes uh, that you describe, you know, can you tell us a little bit more um, about the level of detail that you go into? Yeah. So, um, the one thing that's interesting about the risk analysis is that it really ties back into task analysis. So, you know, we, we mentioned that technique in a previous podcast, but task analysis is really the foundational support for risk analysis, meaning that if I have a strong task analysis, I can actually build the backbones of my risk analysis. If I were to do a task analysis, and I know that we talked about perception, cognition, and action, when I talk about a use-related uh, risk analysis, then I'm really gonna look back and see what were the mistakes? Were they in the perception? Were they in the cognition, the actions that the user did when they were trying to do a particular step? So I can really hone my risk analysis by having a very, very strong task analysis. Mm -hmm. 
What does that task analysis, you know, we, we talked a little bit about that previously. How does that relate to actual risk analysis? I just answered that question. So delete that part. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. um, <laughs> I thought you were setting me up to go into more detail about it. <laughs> no, no, no. I just did it. We're good. All right. All right. Here's a pause. Sorry. So can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, root cause, root cause analysis and, and what that is and how that differs? Yeah, so, um, so the root cause analysis, again, this, uh, this chapter is contributed by Tim Reeves, Christina Mendat, and, and Eric Shaver. And, um, you know, it, it's really looking and asking the question, why does use error happen? So, you know, what, what were the, the main reasons? What were the, what were the considerations um, and, and, and why, do, you know, why does it happen and, and, and how can I prevent it from happening? So th there used to be a, um, sort of an old and a new opinion of use error. And one of them is that in the old opinion, it was that, you know, that the healthcare providers were somehow, um, just, they just made a mistake, you know, that that was, that they that they were at fault. And in reality, the way that the guidance documents are written and the way that the, the new view of human error is really that um, that it's a consequence and not a cause. It's it's the symptom is the of the underlying problem is the system's design in itself. So we can't really say that people make mistakes. I mean, obviously they they do make mistakes. However, we need to design our devices so that it makes it harder for them to make that mistake. And it's the systems problem that the system within the practice of medicine, the system within that device design was actually the, the root cause of that particular problem. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm going to, you know, maybe show ignorance here, but um, you know, we have, uh, you know, different analysis that you performed. Um, it seems you know, coming at it from the outside, uh, it seems as though these are, you know, kind of common sense that you'd want to apply these types of analysis to, especially a medical device that's going to be used to, you know, perform a procedure or a technique or, or something to potentially improve, you know, the body in some shape or form. Um, you know, obviously you need regulations in and around that. Um, but how do you formalize or, or how did they, how did you come up with like the formality of, of, um, identifying, you know, the different types of, of processes to follow and, and when is, you know, one used over another? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, a really good question because, uh, it gets down to, you know, what, what methodologies do you have in your, in your toolbox to determine what that, that causes and, um, there's there's several of them that are presented in the book. Um, the the first and foremost, which is is probably not surprising, and it's I think it's it's sort of a, a kid game, which is the, to ask the five whys. And you know, if you ask why five times, and you'll eventually get to the to the true root of the answer. Um, and and it gets down to the you know if you just if you look at the problem, start asking that that first why that gets you that first level of understanding. It's usually fairly obvious. Uh, it's the second or the third why that that becomes um, becomes a, a bit more uh, um, you know more applicable. The uh, the other one is is a, a tool called the UpCare model, um, and the UpCare model is um, one that uses the perception, cognition, and action error taxonomy. So what that does, and that gets back down to the task analysis, where within that task analysis you have that <clears throat> perception 
cognition and action, you have it listed out. So you'd be able to use that in regards to building that backbone. So that gets back to the, what I was talking about with the task analysis. So if I've identified those areas, I can say, well, the user went to go perform this action, but it wasn't available to them. Or what was the, re what was the root of that, that, it, that there was some, um, something about the device operation that didn't enable them to do it, or they weren't able to troubleshoot their problems, maybe because they didn't know. Well, now we're talking about something that they, the, a cognition problem where they, um, they, you know, that they, they were unaware of, or it could be that they didn't hear an alarm. Well, now we have a perception problem. So the upcare model is really a strong model because I can break it down into each one of those elements which relate back to design. Um, in, in reality, you know, you asked the question about how do you choose, you know, what you're going to do when, uh, you know, you, you, it gets down to a defined structured approach where I define that use error, I identify what I think might have been the problem in the, the provisional root causes, I, I look for anecdotal evidence, is there some other information about it that I can I can glean to gain insight. I, I look for the, you know, I inspect the design, see if there's any flaws there. Um, really just take that whole broad approach for what possibly could be contributing to this error that's happened and then generate that hypothesis for, you know, why, why the problem exists. So it's mm -hmm. definitely an analytical approach. Sure. Well, so, all right, this isn't on, you know, as we prepared to talk today, you know, something else just kind of came to mind. Um, you know, we're not to, to date us today, but, you know, we're in the midst of, you know, a global change um, related to, you know, COVID-19 and, and uh, in the midst of, uh, of a pandemic. Have, have any of these analysis been forced to adjust uh, based on, um, you know, some of the current events that are happening? Um, not necessarily for, for risk analysis, because it's actually one of the things that you can do. Um, you know, you, you can do your, your root cause analysis, your risk analysis. Those are things that you can do at your desk. So if anything, yep. it, it's given us an opportunity, a pause, if you will, to really address risk and to take a little bit more of a deeper dive and just make sure that, uh, that we have the, the right level of risk associated, that we've got the right control measures, um, and that, that we've done everything that we can by design to improve the overall user interface. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've talked a lot about what happens before a device goes out, but what happens, you know, when, um, when a device gets to market? What are some of the, you know, expectations that are out there in regard to, say, post-market analysis? Sure. Well, you know, I think that post-market surveillance, you know, that was something that, that uh, in the past was maybe glossed over a little bit, um, but why now is that? it's- Why, it's, why, why it's, was uh, it glossed over? Well, I think it was glossed over for product development, maybe not glossed over in terms of safety efficacy, certainly not for those reasons, but in terms of, of bringing it back into the human factors it, um, elements. Um, so in, in doing the research for the book, what I've, what I've discovered is that that, that is, um, becoming increasingly a, ev an evolutionary topic. Um, you know, there's, there's several, you know, previous barriers to identifying known use errors. So, um, for example, in the MOD database, which is on the FDA.gov website, you can search for a product. 
they didn't have a, a you know sort of a drop down. So you have to search for those use errors within the um, within the, all of the that database to see if you can find the nuggets, which means you're reading thousands and thousands of reports. Well, there's a there's a push and an impetus to change that so that there is an ability to say that there was a use error. This was the situation and the condition, so that we can glean a little bit more about. Um, new product development and how to change it by design to reduce that overall risk. And so those are ways in which, uh, you know, folks out in the field can um, know kind of what to expect from their medical device. Is that accurate? Or is that analysis, um, you know, that goes back to the manufacturer? It's analysis that goes back to the manufacturer. However, what's expected in your human factors reporting is that you would have done a surveillance of the um, existing um, of the existing marketplace overall, and you would look to um, see what you can, what insights you can gain to um, on a like device to improve your overall device design. So, for example, and this is especially true in combination products, if they know that there is an egregious error that happened in a particular combination product the agency's gonna expect that you are aware of it and that you've designed around it. So maybe you have to add some additional safety features that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise come across, but you, um, but now you know about it from doing that database search. So, so it would be something that they would expect for you to address. Sure, so you're just building on the backs of you know, the folks that came before you and making sure right. you don't make the same errors. Got exactly, it. exactly, yeah. so that we don't, we don't keep on um, with, that, with, the, with the issues. How does that affect, you know, legacy devices? Um, does that affect legacy devices or, you know, are, are they addressing that in every new iteration? Well, legacy devices uh, or devices of unknown provenance, th those are, the, I think that's where the known use errors are the, um, are, are the super, um, those are the, those are the critical, um, the critical elements. Um, sorry, let's start over again. Okay. They just opened up the door. <laughs> okay, I'm going to answer it again. So legacy or users of unknown provenance, um, those are, just to define what we're talking about, those are user interfaces that were designed before the publication of 62366-1. So it's in a requirement that they be evaluated. Um, it's, it's actually in the 2015 62366, it's Annex C, sorry for the, the reference all there, but it's important that we know exactly what we're talking about. Um, and, and that says that we have to determine the use specification that we have to go through and do post-market, look at the post-market information, identify those hazards. Are the risk controls, um, are, are, they, are they controlled? Are they being controlled? So it, it, does, it means that you essentially that all medical devices have to have this type of an analysis and that um, at minimum it'll have to be put together in a file. So it, it, it gets down to the numbers of reporting. So if there are uh, 10,000 reports on this particular device, and it would be expected that you'd be looking at all of those reports. There's not really a good way to, to bucketize them or to say, I only did 10% of them. So it gets to be pretty much, a, um, in some instances, it gets to be pretty, a pretty big research effort to be undertaken. Now, if it's uh, an, another part of that would be for new product development, it, with a legacy device, if you're going to design a new one, would be to look at what are the fundamental tenants and the use behaviors that have been learned by that device that's out on the market. So would I be changing something that I, I might not want to change because 
just be, just because of what the known behavior is. It's familiar to them. So it's a it's a it's a big research area. That it's it sounds uh, you know very tedious and and actually a lot more challenging than you'd expect when you're you know going through it. Can and I guess um, so that I can understand maybe fully. Can you walk us through you know kind of an example of a, maybe a legacy device and how you know uh, how that how that works um, with something so that you know we're we're talking a lot of theoreticals here, but can you break this all down into an example? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I guess um, let's just take a, 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 I don't know, like a skin stapler, and that's a pretty um, a pretty basic tool. So something that would bring two pieces of skin together and it would hold it together much like you would a stitch, but it's a, it's a stapler. So um, by virtue of its nature, it's still a class one device. It's been out on the market, say, for 25, 30 years. Um, and, but at the time that it was developed, it had no usability information. There was nothing in the file. And we were updating for international sales, for you know, uh, distribution. We were updating our file. What, what we would do would be to take the approach of looking at all of the available databases and searching it under you know, skin stapling and mod database. And, and F, in the FDA guidance, there's a list of databases that they would at minimum expect for you to look through. You would look at the company's um, customer complaint file as well um, and take a look at, at what exactly has gone on in, in the field. So if there were any use errors that happened in the field, then you would have to look at what risk control measures were, um, were there. So, you know, again, the, the process is looking at that use specification um, reviewing that information, documenting any hazardous or hazardous situations that apply to that usability, and then verify that the risk control measures were, the, were adequate um, and conduct a re residual risk evaluation. So, you know, it could be that if you're not making any changes to your, to your actual product design, that it's, um, it's an exercise in research and documentation and just assuring that you've reduced enough of the risk. If you are changing the user interface, then it becomes a little bit different. So in the example that I would be changing that user interface, I may have to do some additional human factors work um, in order to verify that, that I've not negatively impacted the user interface for something that's been out on the market or that I'm, I, I, again, controlling those risk measures. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for going through that. I think that makes it a whole lot more palatable in terms of understanding how uh, how these um, uh, analysis apply. So I guess, let me ask you one last question. Are there any rules of thumb in regards to determining the need to, of applying you know, human factors to legacy devices? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you asked that question because um, you know, the biggest rule of thumb is that if there's a, a design change in um, in the existing user interface, then you're going to have to apply your human factors methods and it would, and the whole complete dossier would be expected to be completed. So, you know, again, if you're not making a change to user interface, then pretty much you can do your risk analysis, um, update that, that usability file in house, um, pretty readily. And just assuming that the device is, is relatively safe in the, in the field. Um, but when you're changing something in the, in the user design interface, then, um, then you would need to do some additional testing. And by that, I mean, if you were to change any of the controls, change the overall geometry. Um, so it gets to be a, um, it, it, it can get into more further human factors being necessary. 
What's the you know most important takeaway from this section? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. So I think that the most important takeaway is that use-related risk analysis is something that is um, is is so important. It should start earlier, rather sooner rather than later. So even in early as a design process, when you're starting in. Um, thinking about the design in and of itself, you know, thinking about what could possibly go wrong and how do I prevent the user from making a mistake. Um, all of that feeds into that use-related risk analysis, that task analysis is the backbone of it. And then while you're doing your human factor studies, again, you really have to hone in to the root cause. And that root cause has to come down to something within the design, something within that system that is that root cause. And then it's an ongoing process. So the, la the last chapter in this particular section in, in regards to surveillance, it's just an ongoing, it it's not something that's anticipated to end. So it isn't as if you do one risk analysis and say, okay, well, I'm done, it's, it's finished. It's more of a, an iterative approach where you've got to follow through. That's a really great overview of this of this section, and and I'm sure um, you know you want to say thanks to Sophia Kalita, Melissa Lemke, Tim Reeves, Christina Mendon, and Eric Shaver for for assisting you in all this. Um, you guys did a great job in covering, you know, all that goes into making sure that you know devices are adverse to risk, right? So, um, thanks for for uh, going through this section with me today. Oh, you're welcome, Justin. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Until next time, you've been listening to the latest episode of HSDNA. My name is Justin Sarbert and look forward to your next episode. <laughs> I may have changed that one. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. It's Friday, right? It is Friday and my dog was... This has been the latest episode of the HSDNA podcast. On behalf of our guests today and host Justin Starbird, thank you for listening. As always, to listen to other episodes of HSDNA, go to hs-design.com and scroll over the HSDNA tab on our menu. Until next time, thanks for listening.